Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. If you thought the Brexit was over, you were wrong. We actually got that vote yesterday uh, against Theresa May, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, against her plan for Brexit. Not surprising. However, it was surprising the magnitude of her loss. Today, she faces a no-confidence vote. The pound up against the euro and the dollar. Go figure on that one. Joining us now to explain uh, what we should look for and whether we're going to soon come out of this Brexit malaise. Dr. Sam Nadipoff, President of Empire Global Ventures, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. So, uh, Dr. Nadipoff, what do you think will happen today? Well, remember what happened yesterday. Prime Minister Theresa May suffered an historic political defeat. Today, she, in about four hours, she's going to have a vote of no confidence. And these don't happen very often. The last one happened 24 years ago. And the last time someone lost one was 40 years ago. If she loses the vote today, which is very unlikely, she'll probably win it by about 10 votes. If she loses it today, the pound could drop by between 5 and 10%. This is a totally unpredictable, unpredicted event, and the capital and financial markets would go insane. So let's say that she does win, as you say, by 10 or 12 votes. Boy, where do we go next here? Well, now there are only three, uh, there's only three options for Britain right now. There's a modified deal Brexit, a no deal Brexit, or no Brexit. Now, The problem is in Britain is that each one of these groups thinks that they have victory within their grasp. Theresa May thinks that, you know, as we get closer to March 29th, the day that Britain actually formally leaves the EU, recalcitrant MPs will come back to her side and vote her deal through in some form. The Brexiteers who want Britain to go back to their pre-lapsarian form, they are, are desperate for this, you know, purifying no deal Brexit so they can go back and be Britain of the 19th century. And the Remainers are desperate to redo the 2016 uh, referendum. And they're thinking this is a huge step forward towards a second referendum. Do you think that's going to happen? A second referendum? I actually think that Britain will stay in the European Union in some form, whether it's a Norway plus, which is a lesser version of membership, or there'll be a second referendum. But that brings us back to the vote of no confidence today. Again, the, the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn, its leader, brought this, brought this uh, vote today, which is the first one in 24 years. It's very rare. <clears throat> His party said they're open to bringing more of them in the near future. What that means is that the Labour Party is committed more towards trying to get a new general election than pushing for a second referendum. For some reason, I've always felt a second referendum is kind of where the country should go, given the greater knowledge of what is really entails. But that doesn't that may or may, may not happen. What side do you think of this argument will move first towards accommodation? The, the problem with Brexit is that it has only two constants. It's totally irrational and totally unpredictable. Uh, a lot of the opponents of a, a second referendum um, have an argument that Trump supporters here would, would, would support, which is we had a vote, the country spoke, we got an outcome, and now you want to revisit it? You know, Donald Trump is president. Get used to it. Well, hold on a second. If, you, if they did hold another referendum, do you think that most people in the United Kingdom would vote against 
Brexit? No, there seems to be in in polling, and people have polled this extensively, about a 51 to 52 percent percentage in favor of Remain now, now that the, the, the facts are coming out. The amazing thing about the 2016 Brexit referendum was that the Leave folks campaigned on things that weren't true and rubbish the things that were. Now we are in exactly the reverse situation. So what is your sense of timing here? I see discussions about delays and delays. Is that the mode we're in now, or do you expect something quickly to happen one way or the other? Theresa May is required on Monday to provide her plan B for what comes next. Uh, In many ways, Theresa May is no longer in charge of this process because she's prime minister in name only with enormously diminished powers of executive office, much the same way that Donald Trump is as president after the 2018 election. Now he's balanced by the House of Representatives led by Nancy D'Alessandro Pelosi. So so we're not going to explain all that right now, but there's a backstory. Carry on. But um, (laughs) on Monday, Theresa May will put out a new plan. And it won't be terribly relevant because she's already so damaged. And in a normal year, she would have been she would have resigned yesterday. But we're not in a normal year. This isn't in a normal situation. And no one can predict what comes next. Here's my question. At what point will the European Union say we want to be negotiating with Prime Minister May? She has shown her grit. She has shown stomach through all of the jeers and the and the rowdy meetings in Parliament. We want to deal with them. So we so let's throw her a bone. We don't want to be dealing uh, with Corbyn. Is that likely? Um, no, it's not. <laughs> You're like, no, that not because the, the European <laughs> Union doesn't want to get involved in internal British politics because not even Britons understand internal British politics. <laughs> and I'll just remind you that back in 1990, when Margaret Thatcher went under a leadership challenge, she won the first vote, the first round, but not by that much. And she said, I fight on, I fight to win. 24 hours, she resigned. Theresa May's on very thin ice. Is there any scenario where the EU would accommodate anything at this point just to get a deal done or are they just going to let the Britons figure it out? They probably want this to fail, right? As sort of an example to the rest of the nations. Well, you have to remember what Britain brings to the table for the EU, which is considerable. One is Britain is a net contributor to the EU budget. They give more money to Brussels than they take. And that's not true of a lot of the members of the European Union. Secondly, Britain is the second largest economy and an important economic part and home to the the European uh, capital um, the European financial capital, but also important. Let's just say still is and is moving. But the final thing is there are social and legal issues within the European Union. Their Eastern European members are becoming a little bit more authoritarian. And Britain has long been a pillar of the rule of law and, and its importance. The EU wants to keep Britain in if Britain wants to stay in. It's just Brussels has no idea what Britain wants right now. Wow. This is something, uh, I, you know, we're going to be talking about this. We've been talking about it for over two and a half years. It just, it's not going to go away. Another two and a half years. Here we years? go. All I know is I think we're going to be having Sam uh, Natapoff in our studios more often 100%. going forward just because it's never going to end. Uh, thanks, uh, Dr. Sam Natapoff, President, Empire Global Ventures, uh, here with us in the Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio.
So let's talk a little Netflix. Uh, Netflix is reporting earnings tomorrow after the close. Stocks had a phenomenal run. What else is new? It's up, uh, I guess, you know, 30% year to date, uh, up about 60% over the last 12 months. So stock continues to perform extremely well. The company announced yesterday uh, a significant price increase, uh, the fourth one we've seen recently, uh, and the stock traded up on that news. So let's get some more color on Netflix with Mark Douglas. Mark is the CEO of Steelhouse. It's based in Los Angeles. California, but uh, Marcus with us is here at the Bloomberg 1130 studios. Mark, welcome. Thank you. What do you make of the price increase? That was an aggressive price increase yesterday. What does it tell you about the company and its future? Yeah, so I think um, in the immediate, literally tomorrow, I think it's an indicator, a pretty strong indicator that they're going to report really good numbers. I don't think I don't think most people would basically report something that could make people think that maybe their they might their growth might slow and then report slower numbers. So I'm betting that they report really good earnings. I think the other thing is is that I think there's no place else for you to go as a consumer. Netflix is the for everyone I know, Netflix and in their numbers the first place to go Hold on for a content. For Hold on a second. Right. I want to because I want to push back. Disney coming out with their own streaming service, supposedly the Netflix killer, right, this year, and they're going to take some of their movies off of Netflix rotation. Is that going to matter? Or you think, no, it doesn't matter, that Disney's now irrelevant? The, I think that basically the consumers have a short list and it starts with Netflix. That's where their money goes first. A, a monthly subscription is less than the cost of a single movie. It's increasingly all new, all original content. They crushed it with Bird Box at the end of the year. Another reason why I think they're going to report really good numbers. And then everything after that is where do I go next? Do I go to Hulu? Do I go to Disney? You don't have kids, do you? The- <laughs> I actually do, but they're not Disney age. <laughs> they're Netflix age. <laughs> so from the computer, from the competitive landscape perspective, you're right. Netflix has been it. They've been first to market. They've got the market share, 137 million subscribers globally. Everybody else is playing catch up. But I'll come back to what I heard from Sumner Redstone 30 years ago, where content is king. The big media companies are pulling their content off of Netflix. Uh, Disney doubles down with the 21st Century Fox acquisition, so it loads up its its content. It does feel like the competitive landscape in 2019 is going to be materially more difficult for Netflix than it's been in the past. Yeah, but I think they look. It, you know, Toyota and Ferrari don't compete, right? They the you can oh, it's where money goes to a number of these companies. Where does it go for, from consumers? Where does it go first? Where does it go second? Where does it go third? Until you see people saying, "I'm going to cancel my Netflix subscription to get a Disney subscription," they're not really competing. So you think there's a the marketplace can support two or three or four? I, I don't, I'm not. I would, yeah, I would be concerned about NBC Universal. Like, I wouldn't be concerned right. about Hulu. I wouldn't be concerned about Disney. I okay. wouldn't be concerned about Netflix. So let's talk about um, my fixed expenses. How much can Netflix raise prices before people push back? In other words, a year from now, could they say, you know what? You love our stuff so much. $25 a month. I, I think that their next price increase is very quiet. There was a meme. So Bird Box 
spawned all these memes on Instagram and other social media. One of the funniest ones was how those 45 million people watch Bird Box with 12 Netflix accounts, right? So everyone knows is sharing accounts. I think Netflix's next price increase is to start locking down the ability to share the accounts, starting to drive consumers who are borrowing accounts to buy how to, do they, to spend more. How do they do that and why haven't they done it already? Well, because it's a form of free trial to, to basically allow accounts to be as easily shared. There's a little bit of control on it, but for the most part, every, you can easily get access to Netflix account without paying for it. The locking it down technically is, is pretty easy. Hulu does it. So I think their next price increase is not announced. It's just, it's harder to share, which creates more subscribers. I would, I'm, bullish on Netflix, I would be that that that's a whole nother increase in revenue that's not accounted for they, they still have so many levers to push. They're basically the biggest production company in the world. Well, let's go to that point that, you know, on the other side of the income statement where it's not just a revenue story, it's a cost story. And they are spending like drunken sailors in Hollywood. The Ch- Ted Sarandos checkbook is open. Nobody spends more money. Nobody's got a bigger checkbook. Is there a and, and they have no free cash flow, by the way, they can't pay for it. Yeah. So they're going to the bond market. <laughs> is there a point where you get concerned that they're spending too much? Um, well, they just generated another billion dollars in cash annually with the price increase they announced yesterday. I mean, that's the that's the that is the long term concern. They they I think they have twelve billion dollars in debt. Um, they're negative cash flow three billion dollars a year, but they're expanding their user base rapidly. And you know that they they added a billion dollars in cash flow just with yesterday's announcement, assuming that there's no no you consumers don't leave. So, you know, they're managing it for now, two or three years from now, I might be a little more concerned. I think for the foreseeable future, they have a lot of levers to continue to generate subscriptions and generate cash. In literally 10 seconds, who's their biggest competitor? I think Disney is the biggest competitor. So they're not, they they can't really compete, but they can compete. They can compete, but I don't (laughs) think they take subscriptions away yet, but they are the number two, they become the number two choice. Mark Douglas, thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Mark Douglas is chief executive of Steelhouse based in Los Angeles, but he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. You know, one of the fastest growing segments of the consumer products business has been the cannabis sector. Uh, we have 38 states approximately in the U.S. right now that have legalized uh, cannabis. There's companies coming public, uh, much greater awareness and acceptance of legal cannabis. Uh, joining us today is Kevin Hart, founder and CEO of Green Check Verified out of New Haven, Connecticut. He joins us in the Bloomberg 1130 studios to talk to us a little bit about what how his company is playing in the food chain, if you will, of the legal cannabis business. So, Kevin, thanks for being here with us. Good morning. Real quick, can you give us, our listeners, kind of the 30-second elevator pitch for what your company does and how you fit into the ecosystem? Sure. We recognized uh, three years ago that uh, you know the banking for the cannabis industry was believed to be illegal, and that's simply not true. It's it's legal within the states where those programs are compliant, and they're recognized to the number that you said. The challenge is it's just very complex and very expensive for state charter banks and financial institutions, which means it's impossible for a cannabis business to actually be able to do this. So you have these two 
independent, highly regulated industries that really don't know much about each other but would love to work together. That screams the opportunity for technology. So we developed a technology framework, a platform, a web app that integrates all the rules and regulations at the local level that the cannabis business operates on. We monitor their, them for compliance. We monitor every individual transaction at the dollar level, and therefore that information is passed along to the financial institutions so they can review the money, bring it into deposit accounts, and financial institutions, state charter banks, and credit unions are dying for new deposit dollars. It's a challenged industry because of the bigger banks. They can bring that money in, and they can pass their rules and their risk profile internally, and then they can pass that information back all the way through to the exam cycle on the back end. So it is a holistic, integrated, horizontal approach to attacking the banking challenge, and we work within the banking system, not around it. Okay, so rather than just saying, well, use Bitcoin, right? You're <clears throat> saying, actually, here's an ecosystem that can, uh, that can perhaps be sustainable within the existing financial world. What I'm trying to understand is, first of all, how you make money, uh, who pays you, and then second of all, is it just state and local uh, financial firms that adhere to this sort of local guidance from the rules, or can it be the J.P. Morgan or Bank of America on the back end here? The larger financial institutions aren't going to get involved in this industry yet. It's not worth the reputational risk. And, you know, candidly, they just don't have the monitoring ability of those individual transactions and the rules and regulations at that local level. Um, you know, at some point in time, as laws change and you know, regulations evolve, I think we'll see the bigger banks getting involved. You can't deny the size of the industry and the growth, but not today. And so this is a ripe opportunity for those state charter banks, credit unions that are looking for new deposit dollars. Um, you know, the other reason why Bitcoin and the others don't participate is, you know, it's, it's complex enough. You take non-regulated currencies and you add that to the mix, and that's just going to push people farther and farther away. So, you know, this is about monitoring cash. You know, it's 80 plus percent of the transactions are still done in cash. Mm -hmm. This is an exceptionally cash intensive business. And where do you get your cash? Uh, our fee structure is based upon the uh, dispensary. They pay a nominal fee structure. It's cheaper than the cost of a debit or a credit card transaction fee. And we also have a tiered pricing structure with the financial institutions. So we do collect a fee on both ends, but it's still cheaper than the cost of cash. So how are the local financial institutions viewing the cannabis business? Are they receptive to it? Are they still resistant to it? Does your presence and your regulatory framework help ease that? Where are they in the general, okay, I'll do business with the local cannabis company? It's a fascinating process that we've been involved with so far. We knew we had to, not convince, but we knew we had to be able to position our value to the financial institutions. And to date, uh, the streak will end. And, you know, I'm a sports person. I believe in hot streaks. The streak will end. Every financial institution that we've had conversations with and demoed this platform to has asked us for an exclusive on the product in the geography they are in. I've been selling enterprise software for 40 years and been involved. Nobody's ever done that before. So this is compliance software, but it's compliance that comes with new business. It actually comes with the deposit dollars attached to it. And they see those opportunities. So they're very excited about it. So what's the longer term plan for Green Check Verified? I'm just wondering, do you see this as eventually being acquired by a major bank when the reputational risk goes away or will there be an IPO? Um, we look at all those options. I'm a big believer of begin with the end in mind, and you always have to keep your options open as to what you might do uh, from a company perspective. But our goal right now is to continue our growth trajectory. We started our national launch that's rolling out. We're in 15 states right now in different levels of comp 
conversation and implementation. Uh, we'll see where the market goes. There will be some changes as uh, things evolve in Washington, uh, but legalization and states' right act actually are going to become an accelerant for us because the Treasury is never going to turn a green light on to banking all the black market money that's out there. And I wonder if actually federal law legalizing marijuana might hurt. No, and it will actually help. Okay. It will actually help us. All right. Well, we'll have to continue exactly how that would help you at another time, unfortunately, because we're out of time. But Kevin Hart, uh, really interesting having you on. Thank you for being with us. It's important to kind of look at the uh, infrastructure of the cannabis industry. I I speak to so many people on uh, Wall Street who say, gosh, I should have gotten into cannabis. (laughs) Right. Not bond trading. It's the biggest play play in consumer. Kevin Hart is a founder and chief executive officer of Green Check Verified, uh, which is based in New Haven, Connecticut, but he joins us here in our New York City uh, headquarters uh, of Bloomberg LP. Lisa, I think we're on day 26, if I'm not uh, mistaken, of this partial government shutdown. And obviously, in addition to the question of how long will it last uh, and is there any end in sight, the question is, can it get any worse than what we're seeing right now? It looks like uh, President Trump has ordered thousands of federal employees back to work, uh, most notably without pay. Uh, But let's bring in Chris Flavel. Bloomberg policy reporter uh, for Bloomberg News. He's at our 991 studio in Washington, D.C., and he's out with a story on this topic. So, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. You know, where do you think uh, this shutdown goes maybe over the near term, uh, the next uh, week or so? Yeah, so we've got a story where we put that question to people who follow this stuff and to people inside and around government. And there's a list, and I would, you know, I'd be folly to try and say here are the scariest things, but one that certainly is alarming is what happens to government workers who decide they just no longer want to be working for free. You mentioned that the president has ordered more federal employees back to work even though they're not paid. That's certainly one way of addressing this, but the problem that we're told is really concerning people at senior levels of government is what if people in vital functions like TSA just stop showing up? They can call in sick, they can quit, they can do anything else, but if they're not there doing their job, really vital functions start to stop, whether that is food inspection, whether it's people getting on planes, whether it's prison guards, and we've never been here before, so we're not really sure if it goes on weeks or even months how they'll respond. Well, and, and Chris, I mean, we haven't we seen that to some extent already with the lines at, uh, at sort of security checkouts at airports, TSA agents not showing up? Yeah, that's a great example. So the latest figures I heard yesterday were, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 7% of workers calling in sick. That's almost three times the typical number. Look at the chaos we've seen with just 7% of workers not showing up. Imagine it's 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Uh, it's really, I don't want to suggest we're predicting it. No one knows. I think the concern is there's nothing really stopping that from happening. And if it does, I don't know what, if anything, the government can do to deal with it. What are some of the areas in your reporting that you found that you know, might be, you know, the most problematic uh, for Americans. Um, you know, we mentioned TSA. What are some of the other parts of government that could be impacted? Certainly, if you're looking at the sort of the the wide 
widespread impacts. Food stamps are a huge issue. The administration has found a way to keep on sending food stamps for now. It's made clear that that can't continue forever, perhaps through February. There's an enormous share of American families that rely on food stamps. 38 million people, they account for 10% of all food people buy in stores and take home to eat. If those food stamps stopped, it'd be catastrophic for a significant share of American families. Housing support, there's a huge number of housing families that need help getting housing. If that couldn't be processed anymore because HUD, the agency in charge, could no longer work, that'd be very traumatic. And then company impacts. This is a big deal because we don't really know what happens when, for example, IPOs stop, when the patent office closes. These are things that we haven't really experienced. So we're, in a sense, we're speculating, but based on pretty good information. The the core of it is a lot of these agencies have sort of clever workarounds that will keep them performing vital functions for a certain amount of time, but not forever. And we're approaching that limit. So I should uh, give you a sense of some of the numbers behind this. So Ian Bremmer, who is the president of Eurasia Group, just tweeting out this data from the New York Times. The typical federal worker has missed $5,000 in pay since the shutdown began. That's a total of $200 million in unpaid wages each workday. I'm just wondering what President Trump's power actually is to order people to go to work even though they're not being paid. So this is before the courts. Yesterday here in D.C., a federal judge dismissed for now a request by uh, a union of federal employees to insist that they be paid. Uh, So that is still winding its way through the courts. But look, a a legitimate question, right? What is the limit of the government's legal ability to order people to work without pay and for how long? Even if that gets worked out, you still have the issue of funding, right? Now, one thing that we looked at in our story is the federal government is an enormous landlord. They pay out almost half a billion dollars in rent every month to landlords around the country. That could stop as the GSA either runs out of workers to process those checks or money to pay that rent. Uh, So again, sort of a cascading effect in ways that we can guess at but won't really know until it happens. So Chris, in your reporting, just real quickly, did you get any sense anywhere that these mounting, exponentially mounting problems are weighing on Congress at all in one way or the other to get a deal done? You know, it's it's so it it strikes me as a black box. It's hard to see a link between how bad things are in the real world and what's happening in Congress, uh, and and it would seem just impossible to meaningfully predict what's going to happen. The one thing we can say from our reporting is these effects are real. Uh, they're bigger than before, and they affect really almost every facet of the economy and the country. So certainly, uh, they are painful for a lot of people, and extremely so for many, and yeah. they will again just get worse. Chris, I'm shocked that you didn't want to go out there and speculate what Congress was going to do. Uh, <laughs> next time you come on, we expect you to have a full uh, eight ball <laughs> prediction of what's going to happen in Washington, I'll work D.C. On that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Chris Flavell is policy reporter for Bloomberg News down in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., where our 99.1 studios are. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.